want to begin, you got your hand up, but I want to begin uh, with a section in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and like to read through these words. So that's Matthew chapter 5. So you can turn in your Bibles there. And uh, we'll just kind of look at the first little section briefly before we, uh, we begin our content. It's Matthew 5, verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we're going to go back to these verses um, at the end when I walk through uh, biblical understanding of Christians in the world. But just by way of, of start, as you re read these words, very familiar, how do you understand our relationship to the world? As you read the Sermon on the Mount, those verses, what insights do you get from those words? Yeah, there's most certainly going to be opposition. There, I think people, scholars have seen a kind of progression um, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, you know... And it starts, everything starts with the first one, which is being uh, poor in spirit. But well, one translation that I've stuck with for a number of years is to be a spiritual beggar. The word poor, translated poor, patokos, means destitute, having nothing to offer. And, you know, there were many beggars in Palestine in those days, and there are even today in the world. People have nothing to offer. And Jesus said, if that's what you are spiritually, then I'll give you the kingdom of heaven. If you understand you have nothing to offer God, there's nothing that you can bring to him. But you must receive everything good from him, then he'll give you everything. He'll give you the kingdom. But from that, then there's a progression. If you look at it, uh, those who mourn, I think a good way to understand that is those that are mourning over their own sins. And then they'll extend that. They mourn over the sins that they see in other people, not in a judgmental sort of way, but it's, it, can it really be that we're this bad? And there's this grieving that comes over the fact that we are such sinners and God is so holy and has only been good to us and you start mourning and there's a kind of a lifetime mourning over sin which will not in any way characterize our experience in heaven. We'll be done with that. There's no mourning in heaven. But there's a mourning now and I don't think it's just mourning because of bereavement like you know you put on a, a Christian a bereavement card you know that you've lost a loved one and says blessed are those who mourn. I think that's really kind of out of context. I think it really has to do with mourning over sin and uh, the grieving that we, we do about our own sin and that of others. And then it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will um, inherit the earth. 
Uh, meek is a hard word to understand, but you know, you're talking about somebody that um, is not arrogant. They're not, you know, proud. They're not, you know, uh, harsh. But there's a humility. There's a sweetness of temper that comes. And uh, th- these all go together, not to be taken individually, but a cluster of attributes. And Jesus says the, the meek, not the dominators, not the tyrants, but the meek are actually going to inherit the earth. It's not the Hitlers, Napoleons, the Alexander the Greats, but the meek are going to get it all. It's incredible. And then this one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does that mean to you to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, it says in Romans 8, who hopes for what he already has? So I think in the same way, we hunger and thirst for what we do not have. We hunger and thirst for what we are not experiencing. And this is an unrighteous world. And righteousness is not easy to define, but I think it's that which lines up with the character and the commands of God. God is a perfectly consistent being. He is consistent with himself. And a hunger and thirst for righteousness is for a heart attitude, a heart state, and a lifestyle that corresponds to God and to his holiness. And we don't see that in ourselves, not the way we want to. And still less do we see it in our world and we hunger and thirst for it. And Jesus promises that there will come a time that we will be deeply, richly satisfied in righteousness. Second Peter calls heaven, the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness or where righteousness dwells. How awesome is that? Hungering and thirsting, someday we'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a lot of ways to understand that, but the fact is that sin produces misery. And we have received mercy from God, and we have not received the condemnation that we deserve, and we know we deserve it, but we've, been, we've received mercy, we've received grace. And so in the, in the sense of the 10,000 talents, we who have been forgiven much, we then yearn to forgive others too. And when others sin against us, we want to forgive them and not choke them and say, pay me what you owe me. There's that sense of, of a flow of mercy. But mercy, as, as, a, as differentiated from grace, it's hard to, to differentiate them. But sometimes people say that mercy has to do more with alleviating the suffering that sin brings. And I'm okay with that. That, you know, when you see somebody like a blind beggar cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me. He's meaning, free me from my suffering. And God is merciful. And so there's a desire to alleviate suffering among others, but especially eternal suffering, and that is hell, that people would, would instead be eternally happy in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The more you go on in the Christian life, you realize how true it is that you are not pure in heart, even after all these years that you've been walking with Christ. But God will make you pure in heart. And when he makes you pure in heart, you will see God. And you actually can say they happen at the same moment because we see Christ in his perfection. We will be instantly transformed and made like him. That's glorification. And we will see God. But 1 John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So that causes a dynamic of purification that goes on in our hearts. And we want to get rid of sin. We want to be pure like Jesus is pure. Every impurity we want out of our lives. And that's that process of sanctification that we are about. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, The sin in this world has caused disharmony. It's caused strife and conflict and brokenness in families and in nations and communities. There's all this lack of peace. And Christians want to see 
peace. But we want to see peace the way God defines. We want to see Jesus, the Prince of Peace, honored and glorified. We want to see him reigning over a kingdom of peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there shall be no end, Isaiah 9. We want that peace. And so we want to see people reconciled with God as though God were inside us making his appeal, pleading with sinners, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God, that God is at peace with you, that having been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We want that kind of peace. And then we want the peace that flows from uh, having a right relationship with God, peace in families, in marriages, peace in in communities. We want to see all that. We know it's not going to be perfected in this world, but in the next. And so we we want to be peacemakers. And if so, we shall be called, it says, sons of God. Now, if you live like all that, that's a Christian life. That's a genuine Christian life from inside out. You live like that, you're going to be persecuted. The Apostle Paul says everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The world is made up of people who are not like this. Not yet. And uh, if that's how you live, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to have a hard time. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you yearn for righteousness, you want to see righteousness in our society, you want to see righteousness in our city, you want to see righteousness in people's family lives and their marriages, you want to see all that, and you move out in that direction, you are a peacemaker in the name of righteousness and all that, you can expect to be treated like everyone who's ever lived like that has been treated. First and foremost, Jesus. He said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. If they welcome me, they'll welcome you. And so you can expect to be persecuted, but then he says, if, it's, if, if it happens, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so that fits into the topic we just finished, that heavenly reward that if you're willing to be in some ways beaten up, probably in our country more relationally beaten up, not physically, although within a generation or less, I wouldn't be surprised if Christians more and more take a beating for sharing the gospel physically. But Jesus doesn't just talk about physical blessings. He talks about uh, beatings. He talks about, um, about uh, being insulted, being reviled. And so words matter. To be, to be spoken harshly against, Jesus will later say that if you say, you fool, to your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. So even those kinds of words of insults can be very hurtful. And uh, we don't want to face those, but Jesus said, if so, rejoice and be glad. Then he goes from that into this teaching. It's very well known and, and fits our, our topic very well about being salt and light. What does it mean when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth? What do those words mean to you? Okay. Preservative. Salt is a desiccant. Dries, dries the meat up. Moisture in meat is a, is a seat of, in, of bacterial growth. And so salted meat lasts a lot longer unrefrigerated. They didn't have refrigeration back then. So you could eat it much later. Whereas if it's not salted, then it might be bad after a short time. So there is that aspect of preservative, but that's not all. That's not why, for the most part, you use salt. Do any of you have salt on your table? Have you ever been to a restaurant that had salt on the table? All right. What do you use salt for? Flavor. And so Colossians says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. So I think there's both aspects. I'm not going to choose either. It's both. There's a sense of preservative from corruption, but also a sense of seasoning where you are 
the kind of person that people want to talk to, like Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Didn't she want to talk to him? And, and more and more as the conversation went on, if you knew who it was who's speaking to you, and if you knew the gift of God, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And she's like, I have no interest in anything you're saying. She was not like that. She's like, tell me more. First of all, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you are an interesting person. <laughs> so creating a desire. People can see something in your life. You look at these beatitudes. If you really live those out, I, I can't help but think that would create a yearning in people who don't know those things. They don't know that kind of peace. They're not, they're not meek. They're not at peace with God. They're not humble. They're not you know, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. They're not living like this at all, but you are, creates a thirst. But, he says, there's a danger. The salt losing its saltiness. Well, what does that mean? If the salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. I mean, it's, it's almost openly what he says. It's no longer good for anything. What does it mean for the salt to lose its saltiness? If it's not acting as a block to corruption, okay, and if it's not creating in anyone a thirst for Christ, put it that way, it's worthless. Is there a danger that the American church is losing its saltiness? I think that's probably why we're here today. We are rightly concerned about that. Jesus was concerned about it. He used another image. He says, you are the light of the world, which is so interesting because he says of himself that he is the light of the world. We don't see a contradiction in that. We are the light of the world as his disciples. As Peter and John boldly shared the gospel after healing the paralyzed man in Acts 3, and then they're arrested for it, and they are so bold in saying salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, Jesus made Peter and John like him. And so the salt loses its saltiness if we stop being like Christ. We're not sitting in the presence of Christ. We're not drinking him in. We're, we're being, becoming worldly. We're becoming just like the surrounding world. Then we've lost our saltiness. And if we as the light of the world are hid under a, a, a bowl, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that happens, but some of it is just that we kind of withdraw from the world and go into a kind of a Christian ghetto, and all we ever do is interact with Christians, and we don't really shine our light. We don't speak what we really believe. Um, then what good is it? And there's no point. But God puts us up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So anyway, that's an introduction uh, to our topic. Um, we're going to look in this class over the next number of weeks at you know, some of the hardest issues that we face in our day. And the whole first section of your handout, I'm kind of arguing, I'm not going to read through every word there, but that America and Christianity are, American Christianity is a degenerating orbit of positive relationship with the surrounding culture. Uh, that we have had, an, I would say, in church history, an anomalous relationship with the government and with the surrounding world and culture. It's an anomaly in, in church history. For the most part, Christians have been opposed by the government where they are, and the surrounding culture has been hostile to Christianity. That's the norm around the world now, right now in the world, and it's, it's the norm across 20 centuries of church history. We see it at the beginning of the Christian church, which grew up in a very hostile situation in Palestine, 
that example in Acts 4, Peter and John, arrested for healing someone. And within an, one more chapter, they're being beaten for the name of Jesus by Jewish people who had not yet come to faith in Christ. Some of them never would. And so they used their power there and their religious, their religious government there that the Romans allowed them to have there in Jerusalem. Uh, and in Judea, they uh, persecuted Jewish Christians. And they decided in John 9, while Jesus was still alive, that if anyone said that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be evicted from the synagogue. And so that immediately made um, uh, economic hardship for uh, Jewish Christians, so much so that the Apostle Paul gathered money among Gentile converts in Greece and in Rome for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem because they were unemployed. Nobody would buy their furniture or their pottery or anything. They were out, blackballed. And so they became poor because they were Christians, Jewish Christians. But then as the gospel spread throughout the Roman world, uh, the Roman government saw Christianity more and more as a threat and started making laws and regulations to check the spread of Christianity and required Christians to burn incense to Caesar and to just as a form of citizenship in the empire to show first and foremost allegiance to Caesar. And this they could not do. And this is a lot of the backdrop of some of the early chapters of the book of Revelation as some of those seven churches were, you know, having to face the emperor cult the cult of emperor worship and wouldn't do it. They wouldn't yield and they were being arrested and persecuted. And so there was, there was a couple of centuries of hostility between the Roman government and Christianity until Constantine declared himself to be a Christian and things eased up. But from, that didn't end persecution. The Christianity continued worldwide to be persecuted wherever it went. Um, and so this is the norm. But in American uh, history, uh, Protestant Christians really established the government um, and did so in a very openly Christian way using Christian rhetoric. Similar to Constantine, we don't really know for certain that all of the founding, governmental founding fathers of our nation were actually born again. There's lots of debates about that. But it's really interesting, and you can read through all of this, this rhetoric. Um, in 1892, a Supreme Court justice declared that the United States is a Christian nation. Barack Obama declared that the United States is not a Christian nation. A lot of it, it just depends what you mean. For me, the real Christian nation is the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth, in which there are nothing but believers in Christ. At that point, we won't need faith anymore. You'll just see him. That's perfectly pure unity around the person of Christ. We've never had that in this nation. And so if anyone, you know, you're looking for that back in the 1940s or back in the 1920s or the 1880s, just did not exist. That was never the case. I really don't know what percentage of American citizens in the 1880s were genuinely born again. How can we know that? I was talking to my daughter as we we're driving in today. She said, well, what, what percentage of the world do you think is Christian? I said, do you mean like born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit? What do you think? I mean, think about Latin America. Think about Brazil that claims to be a Roman Catholic nation, speaking Portuguese. Think about Argentina. Think about Italy, overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. Poland, overwhelming. What percentage of those people are genuinely born again? You have any idea? I have no idea. I would be, frankly, delighted if 10% of Poland were born again or 10% of Italy were born again. I'd, frankly, be shocked. Uh, what about my home state of Massachusetts? You're like, less, right? You know, 1%. <laughs> uh, 
Well, if you look at the rhetoric and the politics, I, you know, I can see that. But if you look over these quotes, and I'm not going to read through them, but there are, there's so much evidence that there was a freedom that governmental leaders had to, to articulate Bible verses and to speak things like some of these quotes, uh, John Adams, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Well, general principles doesn't save somebody, but you can see that there's an open embracing of the Christian language and the Christian worldview. Teddy Roosevelt said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what that life would be if these teachings were removed. Um, Woodrow Wilson, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. Imagine a president saying something like that now. What's probably one of the most amazing public utterances I've ever read by a president was done by, uh, by Abraham Lincoln in the second inaugural in which he's ruminating over the suffering the nation has gone through with the Civil War, which was caused by slavery. And he ruminates over providence and he says, you know, if in the providence of God, God decides that every dollar ever gained unjustly by slavery and every drop of blood drawn by the, by the lash of the taskmaster has been repaid by a, a blood shed by the sword, shall we say that God, and just quoting, uh, kind of uh, summarizing here, that, that God is deprived of his goodness and mercy and kindness if he did this? You know, basically he's saying as a nation, we deserve this. And the providence of God has seen to it. I can't imagine a president ruminating with the, over theology of providence so clearly as Abraham Lincoln did in the second inaugural. But those things are no longer happening these days. We are in a degenerating orbit. And what we need to do is recognize the signs of the times, as Jesus said. We need to understand where we're heading. We need to understand it's not unusual this is not uncommon for our brothers and sisters around the world are facing these kinds of, of oppositions. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is well equipped to face this. Christians have faced this all over the world and throughout history. But we American Christians, if I can say it this, say it gently, we need to get in shape on this. We need to look back to the persecuting passages. We need to look back at these kinds of teachings and get ready. And not only do we have to get ourselves ready, we have to get the next generation ready and the next two generations ready. We have, we have to prepare our young people to be hated on the college campus if they have even the basic testimony of faith in Christ. We need to prepare them for what they're going to face. We need to prepare them for what the surrounding culture is going to be like. Now, for us as American Christians, we need to understand these assertions in a limited sense, as Justice Brewer made clear. You should read his statement. He said he's not saying that everybody's genuinely a Christian. He explains what he means by America's Christian nation. But our citizenship and our allegiance to the United States of America is a temporary earthly condition. And if that causes you to glitch at all, you need to work on an issue of idolatry, I think the God and country kind of idolatry. You need to be careful and understand that we will be united in heaven with people who were not from the United States of America and who never had and never needed to have allegiance to the United States. And they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They have allegiance in their own way to their own countries in a limited sense, just like we do. But that allegiance is temporary and earthly. 
I mean, friends, if godly Christian marriage is temporary and earthly, then how much more our allegiance to the stars and stripes? You are married temporarily to your Christian spouse, so don't freak out over that. I remember Christy getting all upset the first year of our, we were talking about it. She's like, when we get to heaven, are you even going to spend any time with me? Are we even going to like hang out? Or are you just going to be with all your Christian friends? I guess I'm going to be with hundreds of millions of my closest friends from every tribe and language and people and nation, but so will you. The theology didn't seem to be comforting to her. Uh, you know, just the oneness we're going to share with hundreds of millions um, was something that, but you know, Jesus himself said in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage like the angels. Of so there are certain allegiances we have now that are appropriate now, but they're not part of our heavenly life. Go ahead. Story. The way I understand it is that in heaven, couples like that get an upgrade in their relationship. <laughs> They're going to be even more one in heaven than they ever were here on earth. And so the more we can imitate that now on earth in marriage, the better, but it's going to be much better in heaven. Just no procreation. That's what he meant, that we'll be like the angels in heaven. So that's a beautiful story. But our citizenship, Philippians 3, is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So that's our, that's our citizenship. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. Now we're told in Romans 13 to submit, to submit to the governing authorities, and we do. And we do so with great delight. And we should see some common grace blessings that are ours as, as Americans, which are we should be incredibly thankful for. And which um, people who had a real genius for government when they wrote our founding documents set up a governmental system that's worked better than any other governmental system in history. The transfer of power from one administration to the next is peaceful. There's not a threat of a junta or of a uh, armed rebellion. Uh, anybody assassinates a president, they basically are operating on their own and, they, and justice comes down on them. They're not leading some armed revolt but they're arrested um, or killed quickly. Um, and so we, we just have an amazing transfer of power from governments that absolutely fundamentally disagree with each other from one administration to the next. <clears throat> but yet there's a peaceful transfer of power. And anyone who lives in Africa, like Central African Republic or some of these other places, Congo, different places that have had so many governments over the years and so much hostility and, and war in the streets, would yearn for that kind of peaceful transfer of power. So there's, there's certain advantages we have, certain freedoms. And those things are well worth defending and protecting and being thankful for and all of those things. All I'm saying is Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says they're temporary. And our allegiance is temporary and earthly. Our true allegiance is to Christ. And this is spoken of by a man who frequently played the I'm a Roman citizen card. When, when it was necessary, he would play that card. You know, I bought my citizenship for a large sum said the Roman tribune to Paul. And Paul said, yeah, but I was born a citizen. All right. So he, he played the card when he needed to, and it was beneficial. It opened some doors. He appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. Uh, he avoided a few beatings um, because he was a Roman citizen. Gave him some access. But he's, look, Philippians 3 says, our citizenship's in heaven. That includes me. My real allegiance is to Jesus Christ. However, we need to see how far degenerate, degenerated the public discourse has gotten and, the, and out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So people's hearts are hostile to Christianity. They're angry at Christians. They're angry at the Bible. Um, and so we just need to understand that we're in this uh, decaying orbit. More and more commonly, Bible-believing Christians are denigrated and insulted for their views. 
Furthermore, sometimes Christians are brought to trial for not adhering to some legislation concerning, for example, LGBTQ issues, etc., ethical issues. You're well aware of some of these court trials. People are withholding their services out of convictions. Bakers, photographers, others not wanting to get involved in so-called gay weddings. And so they're brought to trial. They're, paid, they're made to pay fines um, in those states or in those communities. Um, and then Hobby Lobby, the case that all, went all the way to the Supreme Court on religious convictions on birth control, uh, just various issues. And so Christians are having a harder time being Christians in the public square. The level of disdain for Christians is rising. I was reading an article by David French, and he was talking about anti-Christian bigotry. Uh, he's a senior writer for National Review, wrote this article January 31st, 2019. He said the article is entitled, This is What Anti-Christian Bigotry Looks Like. He zeroes in on the battle for free speech and the free exercise of religion. Quote, The first thing you have to understand about the battle for free speech, religious freedom, and freedom of association in this nation is that it's primarily cultural, not legal. From a First Amendment perspective, legal protection against government censorship and government repression is at or near an all-time high. The First Amendment has never been more robust. Panic over court decisions is mainly panic at the margins, whether key decisions and doctrines will be undermined, not discarded entirely. At the same time, however, talk to virtually any social conservative, especially a Christian conservative, and they will tell you that they feel uh, less free uh, to speak and to exercise their religion now than they did five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. Why? Because of cultural shunning, because of cultural shaming. So what he's saying is we're winning the court trials. First Amendment that guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, those things are still there. Um, some of you followed the case with Karen Pence, Vice President Mike Pence's wife, took a job at Emmanuel Christian School in Virginia, which is just a mainstream um, you know, uh, Christian school, I'm uh, sorry, uh, a, a standard conservative Christian school, but mainstream media um, took her to task for working there because they have standard biblical definitions of sexuality. Um, that sex is reserved for marriage and that marriage is defined as a union of a man and a woman. And so there was somewhat of a media frenzy with her taking this, uh, this job and uh, a movement to expose Christian schools, Christian private schools, and to try to sniff around for some, some garbage that they can sling on Christian schools. Um, as a result, a local private academy named the Sheridan School decided to prohibit its sports teams from playing games at Emmanuel. So this is what French is actually writing about. So here's the key paragraph from the Sheridan School's officials. This is what the Sheridan School wrote. Since the majority of students wanted to play, we were initially planning to go, go to ICS with uh, student athletes wearing a statement of support such as rainbow socks or warm-up jerseys. As we talked more, we understood that some students did not feel safe entering a school that bans LGBTQ parents, students, or even families that support LGBTQ rights, forcing our children to choose between an environment in which they feel unsafe or staying home was not an option. So we decided that we would invite ICS to play all of the games at Sheridan. Since ICS declined our offer to host, we will only play our home games and not go to ICS to play. So that's what Sheridan School said. This is what David French wrote in reference to these issues. It's time for Christian parents, pastors, and politicians to understand a simple fact. In the fight for religious freedom, we often focus our efforts on the less important battleground. Legal protections matter less and less when the culture drifts so far from Christianity that shunning, shaming, and exclusion become the norm. Stay silent to keep your job. Change your policies to keep your educational opportunities. Say nothing so that you'll preserve 
your public reputation. And in this more important um, cultural fight, it's critical to wrap our arms around principles, not politicians. There's not one darn thing that even the president can or should do to force the Sheraton school to associate with the kids from Emmanuel. Do you hear what he's saying? We don't want the government to force them to do that. We shouldn't want the government to get involved and make the Sheridan School play sports at the ICS place. So the battle has to be fought on different grounds, not on legal grounds, not at the Supreme Court level. It's more cultural. Combating intolerance is a matter of persuasion, and it depends on Christians exercising a degree of personal courage and resolve. If you feel pressure at work, speak anyway. Say that again. If you feel pressure at work, speak anyway. So what do you think will happen to you if you do that? Could be on abortion, could be on another current event, whatever, some issue of righteousness. What do you think will happen if you feel pressure at work and speak anyway? We're going to be salty, okay? You're going to have some interesting conversations, if you like the word interesting. I've always said that interesting is an interesting word. Anyway, um, anyone else? What do you think what, what, what might happen to you? Could be retaliation. Could be your passed over for promotions. It could actually affect your earning power you might actually be let go, not directly for that, but they'll find a reason. They'll just find some reason. I'm sorry, what are you going to say? Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. But, yeah, all right, praise God. But I think that kind of thing is going to happen more and more. And because you know that, there is an overpowering temptation to keep your mouth shut. And that's what, the, what David French is arguing against. Um, speak anyway. If you see a colleague facing persecution for his beliefs, stand with him. If a Christian school faces public shame and public sanction for its fidelity to Scripture, send your kids anyway. Silence and compliance only embolden those who seek to sideline Christian thought and belief. Those who seek to censor and exclude have no reluctance to express their loathing for traditional Christianity. In other words, they're bold in what they have to say. They really are moralistic zealots. It's not like they don't have some moral scheme. They have it. They believe that they're right, actually. They feel that they're taking the higher ground against bigotry, Christian bigots. Well, we have to be every bit as bold. Christians must be equally willing to speak the truth and defend their faith. Otherwise, fear and shame will do what censorship cannot, drive the Christian faith from America's public square. And, and I think that would be part of what we mean by the salt losing its saltiness. We're not really making an impact at that point. We've been driven away so that people don't have to listen to us. So this gives a sense of how America's culture is turning away from biblical Christianity. Not to mention just statistically, there's an increasing number of people who affiliate as none. When asked on polls, what's your religious affiliation? Uh, they answer none. They don't attend worship. They're not part of any denomination. That number is growing and growing rapidly especially among, you know, those in the, you know, the 18 to 30 bracket, that age bracket. Um, they just say they have no religious affiliations. Agnostics, atheists, pagans, unaffiliated. Paganism itself is rising in our country, becoming a more and more pagan country with its pagan spiritualism. Um, so all of those things are coming. Every increasing wickedness as a result. Immorality, sexual depravity is more and more, more than just tolerated, celebrated. Pro-abortion advocates are becoming bolder and bolder about late-term abortions, which are a little different than infanticide. I spoke about that in a sermon a number of months ago. Frankly, it's just the, the, polar, the polarization that came after Trump was elected, I think, uh, has resulted in, in much bolder rhetoric on both sides and much bolder actions. And what ends up happening is you really just get a crystallization of the pro-life versus the pro-abortion positions. We believe that the, the baby is human from conception, and so we think that any abortion from conception is immoral, 
does not matter how the child was conceived. That includes rape and incest. We think there are special issues of mercy that go surrounding the mother at that point that Christians should and, frankly, are sensitive to. But just two wrongs don't make a right. Killing the child, it wouldn't be right five years into the child's life. We know that. I mean, just because, let's say, the mother decided to keep the child that was conceived by rape or incest, but then the child was becoming unusually difficult to parent, she would have no right to kill that child. So it really comes down to personhood. It always has. It's always come down to personhood, the personhood of the preborn. Whereas their ethic is to de dehumanize right until it's out of the woman's body. I mean, they're really just being consistent, and so therefore really late-term abortions and all that are part of, the, part of the scene. And so those mediating positions that the Democratic Party has used of keeping abortion safe, legal, funded, and rare, rare, it's just inconsistent. It's just an inconsistent ethic. It's politics. Um, and honestly, Planned Parenthood isn't seeking to keep abortions rare. They make a ton of money on them. Um, and so it's, it's very tragic. But we're seeing this. It's just very open. Uh, public, uh, sorry, popular culture uh, celebrates profanity, bold rebellion, creative diversity in ways that would, would have been seen with shock 50 years ago. You just don't, wouldn't have that kind of language <clears throat> on, a, on a program. You wouldn't have that kind of profanity. Just, it just, it's getting worse. And I think we see it. We see it going on. Um, we have also, as I just mentioned a moment ago, highly polarized culture wars. I think the 2016 election really pushed the rhetoric beyond anything we've really seen before. Uh, I mentioned about the Democratic Party itself. It's become more and more hostile to Christianity and all mentions of God or the Bible. One story I read as I prepared for this BFL was of the, uh, the killings that happened, the bombings that happened on Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, um, April 21st of this year. 300 people were killed at churches that were celebrating Easter. ISIS claimed responsibility and said it was in direct retaliation for what happened at the Christchurch, New Zealand bombing of a mosque what was interesting is the Democratic Party's uh, leaders' response to the Sri Lanka killings. Um, and Barack Obama used a curious phrase, the Easter worshipers of Sri Lanka. He avoided the kind of common word, which would be Christian. And his phrase was picked up on by Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of other Democratic leaders, the Easter worshipers. But when the mosque was blown up, there's there no doubt that they were called Muslims. They were called Muslims, and that attack against Muslims is increasing and blah, blah, blah. So there's just this open rhetoric, but they don't want to call them Christians. We know that easily, without even comparison, that Christians religiously, people that are claim to be Christians, are the most persecuted religion in the world, by far. Um, but uh, the American, like the Democratic Party, does not really recognize that or talk about it um, much. On August 24, 2019, Democratic National Committee passed a resolution calling on its party to be more inclusive. That resolution included this verbiage, quote, those most loudly claiming that morals, values, and patriotism must be defined by their particular religious views have used those religious views with misplaced claims of religious liberty to justify policy, public policy that has threatened the civil rights and liberties of many Americans, including but not limited to the LGBT community, women, and ethnic, religious, non-religious minorities. That's the democratic, in other words, we're going to be vigilant against those people. Well, you may well find yourself included in that group, that your religious convictions cause you to speak against immorality, biblical immorality, but the Democratic Party is against you. Yet American Christians in the last presidential election were deeply conflicted about voting for a man, I mean Trump, who seems the most irreligious conservative candidate ever. So we're put in a bad way 
And it became pretty divisive within evangelicalism and what to do about that um, with various incidents that have deeply offended the moral sensibilities of many strongly committed Christians. It pushed Christians in an awkward place to even try to think about, do the ends justify the means? What do we do? I mean, lesser of two evils argument. It's just difficult. And the topics that we're seeking to address in this BFL class are those that just have proven to be uniquely divisive among Christians these days. The things that we're going to seek to address, not everybody perhaps in this room right now agrees. I think it's worth pursuing unity, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but as we pursue unity, genuine unity, Trinitarian unity, where you actually agree with each other and see things alike is a good thing to do. I think it's actually commanded of us, and that as we are brought to perfect unity, as Jesus prayed in John 17, the world will believe that God sent Jesus into the world. The more the Christian church is genuinely united, the better. So we're going to talk about all of those things. So here are the hot-button issues. Here's my menu. Uh, if, I, if I've missed anything, let me know. Um, I actually gave it to um, the staff at the you know, meeting. I said, these are some of the topics we're seeking to address or we're going to address some of the to- these topics. We don't have time to address all of these in detail. So I gave it to them. They're like, their eyes were bugging out. They're like, you're actually going to cover this? Um, um, well, I'm not going to be able to address all of these things. I gave it to you, I said to them. I gave it to you to add to the list. So if there's anything I'm missing, let me know. But here, here they are. I mean, any of you are reading the newspapers, or, or we don't read newspapers anymore, but following news uh, in the ways that you do, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're aware of these issues. So um, I'm going to start with some, some just what I consider to be core issues on which Christians will most certainly fight as time goes on. And they are more important for me than any of the others. And they are to start with the exclusivity of Christ. So what do I mean by that, exclusivity of Christ? Relativism. I thought you said militarism. <laughs> I, you know, with this Q&A format, I try to affirm every answer that's given as best I can. I would, that'd be a reach for me. The exclusivity of Christ equals militarism. All right, I just didn't hear it right. Um, relativism. Okay, right, yes. Um, the idea that there are many equally valid ways to God. Many equally valid ways to, for, of religious expression. I will never say that, that Islam is a valid religion. I, I'm just going to zero in on the word valid, try to understand what the word valid means, see if it applies to Islam, and come up zero. I do not think it's a valid religion. I think it's a false religion. I think it's a demonic religion, as all non-Christian religions are. Um, and we're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says the sacrifices offered to idols are offered to demons. I think that demons have been, throughout human history, God and goddess impersonators and have deceived, tricked people into creating false religions. It's been going on all along. So I think there are supernatural origins to Islam, to Mormonism. I think there are angelic visitations that happen, but I think they're demonic. All right, so exclusivity of Christ is we believe what Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin is still true today. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to people by which they must be saved. There's no other way that your sins can be forgiven except by conscious faith in Christ, the Christ of the Bible. So that's, we're going to fight that battle. It's already going on. Secondly, the inspiration and authority of the Bible. That's why I preached on this two weeks ago. Um, is just the belief that, that the Bible is inerrant, that it's inspired by God, that its teachings are not, you know, patriarchal, archaic, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff that they say. 
I remember people were rising. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find internet proof of this, but I remember reading it, that a number of, of entertainers were questioning why presidents being sworn in still put their hands on the Bible, that filthy, archaic book. And so there's, there's attacks on Scripture itself. And so people are, some people are ceasing to try to even harmonize the Bible with their odd, corrupt views, and they just want to pitch the Bible or attack it. It's been going on a long time. So the, uh, the inspiration authority of the Bible. And then probably the central issue we've been struggling with my entire Christian life is abortion. Uh, it's, it's what's driven this, and it continues to. We will never agree on this. Uh, I think the transformation of human hearts in this, we've seen so many wonderful stories. I think it's not going away. It's never going to go away. And it's, it's um, I just watched a movie two nights ago called Unplanned, and it was hard to watch. Um, it was just about a woman that, a true story that, that a woman that, that was running a, a Planned Parenthood clinic and the transformation that happened in her. And, but certain details of what happens in reference to abortion were unknown to me after all of these decades, and it was very hard to watch. It's not going away. Then end-of-life issues connected with that sanctity of human life, the fact that, that you know, euthanasia, thing, things like that, that human beings still have worth and value even if they can contribute nothing to society, those kind of things. And then the whole, you know, I could have clustered these under some main headings, but I'm just, I just went kind of stream of consciousness here. So sexual immorality in general, uh, the hookup culture, by that I mean, you know, heterosexual promiscuity, fornication, things like that. Those, those things have been around, but they're, it seems getting worse. Things are bolder. And, and it's making, sadly, infiltration into evangelical uh, churches where people are starting to make excuses for things that the Bible condemns as immorality. And the cost is high. It's very high on young people. And so, you know, because of certain things that we're facing as we shepherd this, this flock, you know, I've been talking to uh, numbers of, of the leaders of our church of how can we intensify our teaching on the issue of fornication specifically, on helping people to understand it. Uh, so that just sexual immorality, but then there, of course, is the LGBTQ, et cetera, issue, homosexuality. Um, we, we're going to talk directly about that. Feminism, gender-based roles could have been higher on the list because it kind of predates a lot of these things, but just the consistent attack on the significance of gender. What is gender? What does it mean to be male and female? Uh, the, the fact that now it's seen there's sex, which is male or female, that doesn't change uh, unless you get surgery, I guess. Um, but then there's gender, which is malleable and multifaceted and almost like a, like a kaleidoscope where I'm not even sure how many there are now, how many genders there are. It's just bizarre. Um, and so it's more of a feeling, a sense that you have. It's something you identify as. So those kind of things. So, but it started with feminism and the, uh, the rejection of any gender-based roles, any gender-based distinctions uh, as sexist, uh, et cetera. And then when the Bible actually has gender-based roles, both at home and in the church, it makes the Bible very countercultural on the issue of feminism. And so you have to, and I, this was the first real battle I had at this church, was on gender and authority uh, in local church. Will we follow the Bible on that, or are we going to follow surrounding culture? It became a test case. It's an important test case, but it's still just a test case. Are we going to follow the Bible where it leads, or are we going to just flow along with the culture? And so for me, I want to, two weeks ago I said I want to have the same attitude uh, about every topic as Jesus Christ does. So I started with the Bible. I want to think like Jesus does about the Bible. Well, I want to think like Jesus does about masculinity and femininity, about men and women. I want to try to understand how does Jesus understand men and women. I want to imitate that. 
I want to have that same respect and love that Jesus had for women and that he showed them consistently in his ministry, but also understand why he chose 12 men to be apostles and why he established men in leadership. I want to have Jesus' Jesus's attitude, and I believe Jesus spoke through Paul, so I'm not making Paul some sexist weirdo and set Paul against Jesus. I don't believe that. I think Paul spoke for Jesus directly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want to try to understand gender-based roles through Paul. So we're going to get through and talk about some of that. Coming up to it in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the next sermon I'm going to write is 1 Corinthians 11 on head coverings. So are you worried? Are you anxious? Where are we going on this? Where are we going on head coverings? But what we're going to do is read the text and try to understand it and apply it in the 21st century. That's what we're going to do, just like we do with every text. So I don't know yet what approach I'm going to take. We'll find out on Tuesday when I write the sermon. You'll find out like in five weeks when I preach it. Um, but the significance of gender, transgender issues, talking about that, and then race relations, social justice issues, so-called uh, wealth dist- I, mean, I could put so many things under here. Uh, intersectionality, number 11, could go as a subset of this, how these issues are, are addressed, the history of the civil rights era, of evangelicals in that, um, of slavery, all of those issues. I have not seen any issue in the circles I run in that has been so divisive as that one been remarkably, like almost satanically, genetically designed to divide close brothers. And it's hard. It's hard to watch that. And so for us, for me, what I need to do is, is come back again, again to the scriptures, to, to prayer, to the Holy Spirit, and say, Lord, help me to understand these things biblically and do my best to teach it and, um, and be faithful and listen to brothers uh, who disagree with me and work through that. So we'll do our best with that as well. Freedom of speech issues, uh, which, you know, I skipped over some things. Actually, it's later in this thing, uh, about how freedom of speech is a diminishing issue on college campuses. Uh, It's a major issue, but basically, if you don't sing from their piece of sheet music, they will shut you down, maybe even legally, and maybe even physically, and they'll even advocate. I heard one person who was leading in opposition to Ben Shapiro, who's not a Christian, but he's a a political conservative. Uh, It was almost like they had to have riot police and it's weird because if you look at him, he's not really all that scary, um, you know, but his ideas, he's just got a boldness of saying non-PC things that enrages people. And so this one person who is, who is organizing the opposition to him said that the First Amendment is obsolete. It's not relevant. First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. It's like, well, that's archaic. It's obsolete. Well, the way they think is if you're saying things I don't agree with, you're basically um, attacking me. You're abusing me. And so, ironically, then they throw out the central kind of basic ethic that everyone agrees on, which is do no harm to others. Everyone agrees that that's your basic, your, your, your ethics stop at the end of somebody else's nose. You're not allowed to hit somebody. You're not allowed to steal from them, whatever. It's like, yeah, but not in this case. We can do that. We can attack you if your ideas are so virulent that they need to be shut down. It's scary. It's very scary. All right, so these are the issues, freedom of speech, and then identity politics, all that. And now we just have five minutes left. All right, let me tell you what. Let me, I, I want to just skip all this stuff. This is all like, like culture. And let's go ahead to the scripture. And we're going to walk, begin walking through this more directly next time. But I think I've made the case that we're in a de- degenerating orbit and just how bad it is. Actually, I've not made the case how bad it is. It's worse than I've made here. But it is dangerous. Let's look at some biblical themes, and we'll kind of begin here next week. Biblically, what is our proper relationship to the world? Let's try to understand that. All right, first of all, the world, as I'm using it here, 
is, would be defined as Satan's world system of lies and opposition to God and Christ. That's how I mean the world in this case. It's not what John 3.16 means. <clears throat> there it says God so loved the world. God loves planet Earth and human beings. And so he sent his only begotten son, right? But in 1 John 2, the world, the same word is used differently. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world, everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world, I think, I'm connecting some dots here, but I think it's right. The world is called Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. So it's like this great whore of Babylon. It's this world system of corruption and lust and enticing that results in, in wickedness. So Revelation 14.8 says, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. <clears throat> so there you have materialism, um, you know, the, the trade, the truck and traffic of Babylon, political power, the domination of Babylon militarily. I think the word Babylon kind of sums up the world, you know, the way it's used metaphorically. All right, so that's what we're dealing with. Satan's masterpiece, really. Very, and it includes false religions and cults, includes atheism, and includes a whole bunch of things uh, that are intelligent and wicked. All right, secondly, we started in the world. All of us were rescued out of the world. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. It is so important for us to re remember that. We were rescued out of that. Now, if you say to me, but I was born in a Christian home, there was never a time I didn't know Jesus. Still, I think Augustine makes the case that you are worldly as an infant, as an unconverted infant, when you are screaming for your mother's milk. So you were living out your Adamic nature of self-focus and selfishness until finally you crossed over. Once you learned the law, Paul says in Romans 7, you died. And why is that? Because you rebelled. You didn't follow it. And then at some point you realize your need for Christ. If you were raised in a great Christian home, your, your parents saturated you with the gospel from infancy. And every time you sinned, if they did a good job, they reminded you of your need for Christ. And that's why Jesus came and he died on the cross for sins just like that. And so I need to discipline you so that you don't do these things in our home, but more than anything, you need Christ. We said those things, I can't tell you how many times I said those things to my kids. And so you just wove the gospel. And so even those sweet little kids were in the world. They were carrying out that, that Adamic nature, that satanic nature. So we were all of us rescued out. Now for me, I don't have to wonder. I was 19 when I came to faith in Christ. I remembered what it, like to be, what it was like to be part of the world. And so I was rescued out of that. So were all of us. Thirdly, Christ is the one who rescued us out of this world. He rescued us. John 15, 19, Jesus said, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Like I said, the Bible will get you ready for this. Jesus will get you ready for this fight. And he's saying, I chose you out of the world, and that's why you're hated. You don't belong to the world. You're not going to go down the tubes with Babylon the Great. Praise God, you were rescued. As, as the Lord said, come out from her, that you will not share in her plagues or her judgments. And we've been rescued out of Babylon. Praise God for that grace. 
John 17, 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So again, that out of the world language. See, we were rescued out of it. The ecclesia, literally the Greek, is called out ones. We were called out as the church, called out from this. Called out of the world system. But not, as we'll see in a moment, not called from planet Earth. Not yet. So we're still here, but we're called out of the world, namely the evil world system. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You were rescued from the dominion of darkness. Isn't that awesome? That old, you know, tyrant, Satan and his demons and sin and death, kind of a cluster or the law, the law in sin and death, all that. You were rescued out of that. Jesus rescued you from that. The Father rescued you from that. Out. The Holy Spirit rescued that, you from that. So you were rescued out of that world. Fourthly, Jesus wants us to stay in the world to be his witnesses and be salt and light. He wants us to be in the world in the John 3.16 sense. Okay, so now I'm using the word world differently. I'm using it as John 3.16 means. Just like the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world because he loves the world, he left us in the world, planet Earth, with people, human beings around us because he loves them and because he loves us. So we're still here on planet Earth. That's what I mean by the world. And he wants us to be salt and light. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm going to say this and end here. The centerpiece and top priority of this witness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is so important. As we go through that laundry list of sins, there is one and only one remedy to all of them. And woe to us if we go after special interests and pursue things. Now, I believe there's some Christians that will work on legal aspects and all that, and that's their calling, and praise God for them. But the whole church, our calling is the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We're going to see that. All right, so let's stop there, and God willing, we'll resume next time. Make a mark here where I left off. Let's pray.